This Quiercast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes explore new (laughs) and challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't define me by what I do in bed. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my God. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. He rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. <laughs> That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits. Not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's back were saved. Shop QVC.com podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? How are you? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. Great to have you along the ride, as always. On this episode, I interviewed Heather Hamilton. She is a writer who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, with her husband and three kids. She's the author of the book, Returning to Eden, A Field Guide for the Spiritual Journey, which is out now. Uh, This conversation is very interesting. We talk a lot about um, trying to unpack the layers to discover your authentic self. What does it mean to to be authentic in, in, in a world that uses that terminology all the time? So I really enjoy talking to Heather. She's a really unique uh, story that I think a lot of you are going to are gonna be able to relate to. So I hope you enjoy this episode. That being said, as always, friends, thank you for watching or listening or following the work that the New Evangelicals uh, does. It means the world to have you on board as part of the community. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify, or give us a like and subscribe and comment down below for YouTube. I don't know where you're watching or listening from, but wherever you are, Find the best way to give us a little a, a little love. I'll, I'll put it that way. That would be so helpful. It also helps people know that they're not alone. It, it helps people know that they are not alone in trying to find better ways forward out from the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. And if you want to help hold space for thousands of people, we are a nonprofit organization doing a lot of work even beyond the podcast. You can donate via the link in our bio uh, or link in our show notes or link in the Show description, again, I don't know where you're watching this from, but you can click on the link at your nearest link spot, tap on it, and you can donate. And that's how you can help us. You can help make this work possible. Um, All right, friends, I think that's all I got for this episode. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Heather. Talk to you all next time. All right, cool. Well, Heather Hamilton, uh, we've tried many times to make this episode happen, and it finally has. So I'm, I'm I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. And I'm glad we finally Absolutely. got over the hump of all of our sick kids. Ugh. 
Well, technically, as of this recording right now, my kids are at the doctor's getting checked out for RSV, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, so okay. <laughs> I, I didn't, right. didn't want to cancel this episode because I'm like, I told my wife, I said, well, I've already moved Heather once. I don't want to do it again. And she's like, yeah, it's totally fine. The, the kids aren't like, they're, they're totally fine energy wise. They just have yeah. snot coming out of like every orifice of their body right now. So yeah. we're going to get them checked yeah. out to make sure that, that they're all good. But Anyway, we're not here to talk about snotty, run-nosed kids. You know, we're talking about you and your book. You're a writer. Uh, you wrote a book, Returning to Eden. It's coming out. Well, it will be out by, by the time this podcast airs. Um, yeah. And I'm excited to kind of dig in to the book. It sounds actually, I think, very intriguing, I think, for the audience and for myself. Before I do that, though, I do like asking our guests, kind of give us some of your backstory. Did you grow up in, in Christian circles, evangelical circles? And how did you go from, you know, child Heather to writing a book about returning to Eden? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Yes, I grew up, I mean, I feel like it's quite unremarkable and sort of stereotypical, but like I was introduced to the church through Awanas, um, actually, but yeah, by a neighbor. So, and and what I like to kind of tell people, I guess, is like, I, I know a lot of people in the deconstruction community felt like, I, you know, I had all this forced onto me or my family drug me into this. I didn't have a choice. Um, that actually wasn't the case for me. Like we got invited to this thing. I'm like, I'm good at memorizing Bible verses. I get trophies. We get snacks. We play these, you know, gym games and everything. Like I loved it. Um, and you know, it would actually, if you live in the Bible belt South, you have probably seen like a 15 passenger van that's like, you know, follow this bus to VBS kind of thing or follow this bus to Sunday school. And like that bus would pick me up for Sunday school and like I wanted to go. So it was kind of me um, and my sister like getting involved in like children's things. And then eventually like, you know, our whole family going to church um, and we moved around quite a bit. And it's like every time we moved, it was like, I got to find my youth group. You know, I got to find my people. So like, yeah. I never felt like that that was forced on me. It was always something that I like felt drawn to um, and thoroughly enjoyed. Like, and so I was like evangelicalism, like church world was just like my universe um, for for, forever, (laughs) like since then. Um, So I ended up meeting my church, my husband um, at a church that he was working in. I was doing work in it. And eventually he became the music director at this, um, mega church in our area. And so it was, you know, all of our relationships, a lot of our income, everything was just this church universe. So that um, is kind of how my story started. Mm. I don't know if you want me to like go ahead and transition. Well, I will say it is interesting because I think a lot of folks who listen to the show um, have a similar background that you and I both have. Or you're right. Yeah. I didn't feel dragged to, or you know, going to being forced to go to church. And I was a huge Awana kid. I had all the vests. I participated in the Awana Olympics. So mm-hmm. I, I truly get that. And for the audience who doesn't know, Awana stands for Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed, and it's it's a thing that's pretty popular in the more like Baptist circles than it is the. Uh, yeah. charismatic circles. But yeah, I, I feel that a hundred percent. So, okay. So, so you grow up, you're firmly planted in these spaces. It's your world. You love it. You get married. Your partner is a worship leader at a, at, at a mega church in your local area. You're living really that pretty, from what I can tell so far, that pretty typical, right? Evangelical yeah. experience of I'm all in on the Christian tradition. And the yeah. way I know how to be all in is by giving as much time and energy to the church uh, either as yes. a paid staff or a volunteer. So that's where we're at currently in the story, correct? Yes, correct. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So about four years ago, um, I won't get into all the specifics, but essentially we have three kids. We I had just had our third child who was probably uh, two months at this point. And long story short, I sort of spontaneously had some really major revelations about my life. Um, just different traumas that I had not dealt with or even recognized as traumas. And once I did recognize them, it was like putting on a pair of glasses for the first time when you're like completely blind and realizing like, oh, I now see my, I see myself completely crystal clear. Um, And this has been here the whole time. I just could never 
see it. Um, And so it was like, all of a sudden I had this um, really clear (laughs) understanding of my life, my motivations, why I had done things um, and, and understood that like the, so many of the choices in my life that I had made weren't made like out of my own agency or out of my own authenticity. They were much more about, you know, attachments and tribalism and, you know, social anxieties and, you know, this super ego that felt like I had to, you know, perform in a certain way for God to, you know, to earn my crowns in heaven or prove myself or whatever. Um, so anyways, this kind of all came erupting up, (laughs) um, very quickly. And it was basically literally like over the course of a few days, like I started having, um, really intense, like panic attacks, like back to back to back to back, which for anyone who have ever experienced panic attack, like it's a very hellish experience. Um, but I had like really no history with this and it was so, they were so frequent that I really did like to descend into this like psychological hell. (laughs) And I'm not like trying to be like cute or metaphorical um, about that. Like the kind of the climax of this experience was me going like, I think that that psychologically is what I just experienced. Um, And so like in that moment, um, you know, like I told my husband, like, I I don't I'm not aware of like I had been in therapy like for years and kind of knew like I don't think talk therapy is what's going to help me now but I didn't know of any other resources so it just felt like this big risk to be like asking you know I don't know what's going to happen I've got these kids to take care of and anyway but we so we called 911 and um when the ambulance and the emergency response team showed up you know I opened the door um and immediately I was speaking with someone that I immediately recognized as a transgender person. And in this moment of vulnerability coming from the space that I was in, it was sort of this gripping fear where it was like, I'm um, unraveling here and I'm confronting someone that I don't, you know, I have all these built-in ideas and assumptions about. And so there was a lot of fear. And in that moment, she, you know, she started speaking. I kind of started, you know, word vomiting what was happening with me. Um, and when she started speaking to me, it was like this presence of Christ like came off of her and I felt seen for the first time. You know, I was, I didn't understand what was happening with me. I'm trying to articulate it to my husband over the course of a few days and some other people. And they're just like, what is going on? And this was the first person who really saw me and that I understood had been in a similar place. And it's a little hard to explain, but I had just kind of, I was in this pit that I recognized as hell. And in that moment, it was like Christ was on my front porch in the body of a transgender person. And I I, like, I recognized that. And it was like that flipped my whole perception of everything upside down. And even being in the moment, it's like, I'm in it. And I'm also observing myself in this juxtaposition going like, we've been out, you know, in these church environments, going out to find God and trying to lead people to God and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, like Jesus is standing on my front porch. Like it was like, it was so close and intimate to me that I recognized like I've been overlooking this. It was almost a picture externally of what was true internally, how I had been searching out there to find God and overlooking it when it was in me the whole time. So kind of in this woman's mirroring back to me, I also recognized like this presence of Christ in me that had been there from the beginning. And so that I think, you know, not all of this like came into uh, like a logical reorganization in that moment, but in the months after it was going like, you know, I I think what I'm recognizing in myself, this awakening of this presence of Christ within me was from my origin, like, you know, from the beginning, 
before my mother's womb kind of thing. Not, not this moment when I was seven, where I like invited this external presence into my heart and like, that's how he got there kind of thing. I recognized it as something that was innate in me. It was innate in this woman on my porch. And so very quickly, I kind of began to recognize Christ as like this authentic essence or presence, like deep within the heart of every person, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it was um, the deconstruction process for me started with that, the very visceral experience, which kind of felt like this road to Damascus, like BC, AD moment in my life um, that I kind of had to, that shattered everything where I had to put the pieces back together. Yeah. I, um, wow. Thank you for sharing all that. And um, I I do understand the panic attacks and that it's interesting you mentioned the word hell because I went through my own stuff a couple of years ago. We're very similar. Where it's like almost like a light switch. And I had no categories for, for what a panic attack was or what anxiety was. You just kind of keep going. And I remember yeah. waking up one morning, my body full of cortisol. Um, I'm in fight or flight mode. Don't know why. I'm just, I'm, I'm just panicking. It's like 630 in the morning. I have no kids at this point. And I'm, 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 I'm on my couch kneeling, just begging God to take this away. And I had this moment of like, this is, I, I'm in hell. Like I have, yeah. I have arrived at what hell is. There's, you can't escape yourself. Like you feel yeah. like, like, like you need to escape your body, but you can't. And you just feel incredibly trapped. So I appreciate you, you know, kind of sharing that from your vantage point. And, and I think that's really important for the audience to know as well, because I know a lot of people go through those things and depending on, on their family of origin or their uh, Christian tradition, they they take it as demonic attack or like they did something wrong and God's punishing them. And all of that stuff leads to, I think, ultimately really unhealthy views about themselves and the world around them. So you have yeah. this, so you have this moment uh, or like very quickly, a few days, right? You're, you, you call 911, this person who is the last person you expect on the planet to be Christ to you is Christ to you, changes your whole paradigm. Why do you end up writing a book called Returning to Eden? So like, is there a, yeah. is there a connection there? Yeah. So um, going back to that recognition of Christ in this person, recognition of Christ in me, and even talking about the panic attacks, like yeah. at the time, it was this thing where I was like, this is awful. I want to avoid this at all costs. You know what I mean? This is this horrible thing. Right. But um, in the in the months that followed, you know, um, I, I did a lot of what's called EMDR therapy. I don't know if the if you've spoken about that on the podcast before. Mm, but I don't think we have. Okay, it's essentially like this trauma based therapy where you go and you um, kind of identify what might be like traumatic or distressing memories, and um, lots of therapists do it now. But you basically like reprocess the memory, um, and so that it doesn't cause your nervous system to go into distress when you're like thinking about it or you're having, even if you're not thinking about it, but you're just having like a somatic experience that might, you know, trigger that. So in the months that followed, you know, I realized the anxiety that I actually have is this wisdom in my body. Um, I couldn't see it that way at the time, but I would notice myself in different situations where I'm like, why do I feel anxious? You know, why am I in this room? Like, why do I feel anxious around this person or whatever? Mm. And I had realized that I had like suppressed my authenticity or my gut feelings about things in order to like maintain my attachments to the group, you know, not cause any kind of like disruption, um, which, you know, for me, the group is like in the church tribe, you know, um, or, or just around friends or, or whatever. It was like kind of constantly like molding or adapting myself to create harmony, like in whatever environments I was in. Which, you know, sometimes just in relationships or societal things, like obviously you have to like n negotiate to like get along with people or whatever. But it was just this extreme disconnection from like anything authentic or whatever. And that was, I, I think that that was the wisdom and the anxiety was eventually going like you've lost yourself and you have cut off from yourself. And this is either going to like erupt into, panic and go to a very dark, bad place quickly, or you're going to have to start listening and honoring that voice and figuring out how to like, um, 
yeah, like let it guide my life into like a more authentic existence. So that what I end up what in the book, I kind of tell this story and then I, um, I actually get into this chapter. It's called the anatomy of a seed. So I brought a little prop. I can safely say that. <laughs> yes. Yes. It'll make sense in a minute, but like, okay. so kind of how I explain this is like in the book, when you think about a seed, you you think about like, if, you know, if people are watching, if, if they're listening, like I'm holding an acorn right now. So you think about this little object that like you can hold in between your fingers. Um, and this is kind of how we think about ourselves, you know, like, you know, who's Tim? You know, I just think about your face and what you're about. And there's like this external picture that pops into my mind. Right. So in the book, I, I have this diagram of like this cross section of a seed and it's like, what's actually in this is an embryo, which carries the life and the germinating potential of this seed in order for that embryo to actually like become a tree and let this seed fulfill its destiny the thing that we picture as the seed actually has to be buried in the ground and break apart and die. So it's like the seed represents what I call in the book, like our false self or our egoic personality or this mask that we wear, you know, in, in psychology, it's, you know, you can refer to it as these different things, but it's essentially like our coping mechanisms or our vehicle through life where it's like, you know, who I really am might not be acceptable to my family or for the church environment. You know, my authentic impulses like are going to threaten my attachments. And so when we're children, attachment is like the non-negotiable thing you have to do as a kid. You know, like I got to attach to these people. I got to attach to this group because I'm completely dependent on them for survival. So what I kind of explain with that diagram of the seed, um, I recognized that as true as as like a good model for what had happened psychologically. And then it it started to like occur to me, like, I feel like that this is what the Adam and Eve story is is about. Like you have this picture of the garden and you have a tree and it's like the seed here like grows on a tree. Um, Mm -hmm. And it starts out, it grows as like the embryo. And it's one with the source, you know, the tree of life, which might represent God, this like unitive consciousness where there's no separation from like what, what you've grown off of. It's all kind of one unitive thing. But in order for this individual seed to like fulfill its destiny, it has to form this shell over the embryo. And this is what's going to like protect it from all the elements in life, you know? So it has to fall off the tree, creating this feeling of like separation from its source. Mm. Um, And it has to have a sturdy enough shell to like navigate the environment, not just of like our relational traumas, but just life, you know, like life in itself is like nature is brutal and traumatic. And, you know, depending on how sensitive we are or whatever, like, you know, you need this shell for the first half of your life to like get you from point A to point B kind of thing. So I sort of, I recognized all these parallels psychologically about like, it's to, it's necessary for this shell or this false self to, to develop. And then, so you have Eve, you know, this feminine personification in the story who represents the embryo, which is like the creative life force, you know, of the soul, but that kind of has to get buried and fall from the tree. So Mm. we see like Eve picking that. And, you know, traditionally it's been like this moral failure, but in my view, it was like, oh, this is the natural process of things. Like this is what has to happen for me to like push off from my family of origin to push off, you know, from the church and establish like some kind of separate identity. Mm. Um, so it's it was sort of this like redemption of this story where this feminine essence kind of gets buried within the seed and enveloped by this masculine shell, um, which would represent Adam. And so for me, it was like the spiritual journey kind of began once I recognized like 
that it was about like this integration of like my feminine soul with the more masculine, like rational, you know, forward, decisive, masculine energy, which is like, is kind of, we talk about like toxic masculinity and all this stuff in our culture. And it's like, it's not that there's anything wrong with masculinity, but it's like when there's no integration of any of this like feminine authenticity and creativity and like, you know, the the feminine spirit that like literally like drives life forward, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I kind of break this down and, and suddenly it just became so obvious to me that like these weren't li literal stories. These were like profound mythologies that give like this insight into the human psyche and how to like heal it um, and how to bring like, yeah, like this consummation. Um, I talk about like the two becoming one flesh and mm. how all of these you know, characters and personifications in the Bible are really like parts of us. And the spiritual journey is really about like within ourselves, like bringing these parts back into like a unitive whole, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. I'm, it's definitely a different way of thinking about, you know, um, a story that I've heard one way my entire life. Right. And part of what we do is trying to get people to think about these things differently. So that's really helpful. One of my questions I was thinking about, you know, some of the language you're using, like authentic and um, things like that. How do you define, like, what does it mean to be authentic to yourself? I think that, that, that that's a term in our culture, whether it's more secular culture and like more new age language or whatever, just the idea of just being authentic to you. What does that yeah. mean for you in the book? And like, how do you define that? Yeah. So I think, um, I don't spend a lot of time on this in the book. Um, it, it's not a book about like the Enneagram or any kind of model like that. Yeah. But what I think that those kind of models do, um, and where I actually feel like they kind of, um, miss the mark a little bit or fallen short, like, you know, in, in the pop Instagram, like Enneagram culture kind of thing, yeah. um, is, is sort of finding, you know, a number or an archetype, um, that you relate to, you know, like it, it's sort of this enlightening thing to go like, huh, like I thought I was just me. And mm. now I'm like coming up against like some psychological models that have kind of scripted my whole personality or way of seeing things like before I was even here, you know, yeah. it was just like, I'm hanging out wherever you hang out before you're born, you know? And it's like this, it, it was kind of already like, yeah, I'm going to kind of take on this persona or this shell, or I'm coming, I'm coming onto earth, like with this essence, a certain energy that I have about me or divine spark that like manifests in a certain way, you know, that, and we all have this kind of this authentic essence about ourselves. And then, you know, depending on how we're wired, like coupled with the environment, we're going to form some kind of like predictable shell. So like our coping mechanisms and everything like become very predictable. So I think like to your point, um, you know, sort of the new age pop thing of like, just be yourself, just be authentic. Right. It's a really tricky thing. Okay. Because it, you have the spiritual journey or spiritual exploration is, is first of all, like you have to know yourself and, tr and this exploration of like parsing out, like what is authentically me versus like, what is a coping mechanism? Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, um, once again, I try not to get like two in the weeds with like Enneagram stuff or whatever, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm an attachment type. So I mm -hmm. can walk into a room and I can pick up the energy of the room like that. Like it's, it's a reflex. Okay. Like I feel like my nervous system is just like a giant ear where mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like picking up all the vibrations in the room. Sure. And so before I was aware of this, it's just, I'm sort of reflex reflexively trying to harmonize with everyone in the room or trying to like find the places of discord or whatever and like smooth them out, um, which th that's a great quality, you know, like that's a great skill to have. Um, for me, what I recognize is like, I can't handle the distress of other people mm. to do what's right for me in these situations or going like, I'm not responsible for like everyone else's experience in this room.
Right. So for me personally, a lot of like bringing that authenticity forward has been going like, you know, I can see everyone else's point of view. And I think everyone is entitled like to their subjective point of view. Like I know the way that you see things is true for you. The way that I see things is true for me. And it kind of became this thing of like, well, I don't really want to upset anyone with how I see things. And who am I to say like, this is the right way. So it doesn't really seem worth it to like put myself out there just to like get into a dog pile that I don't want to be in. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that growth area for me has been like, okay, I I think that it is worth it for me to figure Mm -hmm. out and, and let my nervous systems to sustain like saying how I see things or speaking my truth. The, I think another example, you know, like to, to the extreme to say like, you know, Hey, just be yourself. Let's take like a character, a caricature, like Donald Trump or something like this, where you're like, maybe that's not the best advice for you. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) your, your ego or your false self um, is really kind of built around like this wrecking ball of a persona that just comes into a room and like, you know, just, it's like you set the tone for the whole thing. Everyone else kind of be damned kind of thing. You know what I mean? Well, so, that that's, that's what started to interrupt you really quick. That's where I, I think I struggle with the most with like this kind of conversation with other people yeah. as well, where it's like, okay, I love the idea of trying to find your most authentic self. But what happens when I find parts of myself that are authentic, that are not really healthy and that like, right. you know, have um, uh, impulses. I think, I think that, I think that's the word you used earlier that maybe are not good impulses to act on. And then how do we sort through those things in, in a wise way that, that, that do no harm to others and to myself while also right. changing the parts that might need to be changed about me. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. No, totally. So yeah, just going, I mean, going back to like an example like that, like I do think that it takes, um, a level of self-awareness, which maybe, will maybe just start with the, um, (laughs) the, the awareness that like all of us are primarily until we're sort of awake to it are primarily driven by like survival impulses, you know, whether that be like a self-preservation or safety kind of thing or a, a social impulse, you know, where we're primarily concerned with like our legacy or how we're perceived by other, like right. these are like natural sort of, uh, I don't know if animalistic is the right word, but th- I mean, they're basic impulses. Primitive that maybe, we, they're very Yeah, okay, us. that's yeah. a great word. Yes, yeah. primitive um, impulses. So I, I think it starts with going like, this is what is in the driver's seat pretty much, you know, like yeah. I think I'm making these decisions, but really it's like my impulses are in the driver's seat and they're kind of being navigated. You know, I'm holding up this shell again. They're kind of being navigated by an ego, you know, like how do I, how do I satisfy or, you know, relax my impulses with this vehicle that I've been given, you know, to adapt. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's where like certain models, but also like, you know, trusted therapists or whatever are, are helpful in order to be able to like mirror to you. Um, and like I said, I had, I had a therapist for 15 years before I really felt like that I was peeling back some of these deep, deep layers. Um, and, and I think on the surface that might sound like, well, what were you doing the whole time? You know what I mean? Like in in therapy, but I think that the important thing, like from this model is to go like, you know, if this shell starts cracking open too early before it's in some kind of environment where like your you have your nervous system can sustain like the spiritual transformation, the psychological transformation, and you yeah. have like the resources and all of that for this germinating process to take place, you do not want this to crack open too quickly, you know? Yeah. Um when the contents of like your unconscious like start surfacing, if you don't have like some proper holding environment, you know, to to help you through that, um, then it can start spilling out into things, you know, when you talk about mental illness and, and all this sort of thing. But it in my in my own experience and in the research and everything that I've done and that goes into this book, um, 
you know, I, I referenced some psychotherapists like Carl Jung or whatever. And, and his theory was basically like, you know, people who are dealing with mental illness or, you know, mystics or saints, they're all swimming in like the same water. Mm. It's just like the contents of all that for someone who's not understanding or doesn't know how to integrate it into the personality can become like psychosis or neurosis or addiction or, you know, these things to try to deal with it. Versus like, if you're able to like integrate it slowly enough and you're in some kind of environment where, you know, this shell can break apart and you can flourish and really begin to grow, then it's like, you can start incorporating some of those things that you're talking about where it's like, Oh, I've got this inner demon in me that I've been trying to like repress all my life that just won't go away. And now I'm exploding with anxiety. So it's like, it's either going to come out that way, or I can figure out some way to make friends with it. Um, But yeah, I guess, does that sort of answer your question? I feel like I kind of went around. No, that's okay. I mean, listen, this is complicated stuff and we're trying to yeah. put visual images of things that are not visual. <laughs> so yes. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I I, th- I think that for a lot of us in our, in this space, in this community, we're trying to just, we're trying to find this way forward that is honest about ourselves. And we also recognize that, you know, and I think you would agree here that, that humans have the capacity to do immense good or immense harm. And how do we make sure that we're doing our best to, to minimize the harm that, that, that is potentially possible for, for, for me to commit, for example, right? And so I oftentimes kind of find myself in this tension of like, how do I seek wisdom to help decipher which parts of me that are just natural are really good that I should keep developing and which parts, if not, if left unchecked or left repressed, right, can lead me to, um, to have really unhealthy expressions that harm my family or harm myself in, in all kinds of ways. And so I think that's a really fair point. One of the questions I had for you as you were talking is, so when this all happens for you, right, and now you're kind of where you're at now, you're, you're an author, you wrote a book, Returning to Eden, and I'm assuming that, um, based on what I can tell about you so far, that, that I'm sure you, you've reflected a lot on just your evangelical, um, I, I guess I should say your time in these evangelical spaces in general, right? Yeah. So for you looking back, um, were there any positives of like, wow, you know, the, the places I were a part of really helped me with this? Or was it looking back now, like, you know, I kind of feel hoodwinked. You know, I kind of feel like I, I thought I knew what was up. And looking back, not much is salvageable. How do you reflect on, on, on your time in those spaces now? Yeah. So I think obviously, I mean, this is just self-evident for anyone who's like be, begun a de- deconstruction process or like you know, left their church or whatever. I, I think that probably maybe universally, like along with sadness or grief or whatever, there is like this anger that comes up where it's like, yeah. um, okay. Like I dedicated my life, my one life to something that now I'm like, <laughs> you know, uh, what are we doing here? Kind of thing. Like if I, if I don't believe in, in, if I don't believe I'm saving people, like what am I doing here? You know? Right. Um, so there is kind of this this anger where where you're going like, what were the motivations for my decisions, or what what passions did I not pursue um, because I felt like I had to dedicate my life to God in in this way, you know? Yes. So yes. I think that there is like a proper mourning period where you're like oh, I think I've wasted some of my life, like unconsciously, you know, or at least not felt like I had agency or autonomy over it. Um, So there is like that anger. Um, What I have personally come to observe in my own life is I don't think that this experience is just specific to like church or religions. Like I think that this is... um, a pattern that's sort of universal to the human experience, this like falling asleep to ourselves, like actually in the, in the Genesis story, it says like, you know, God put Adam to sleep and it never says that he wakes him up. It Mm. never says he wakes up. (laughs) So it's like, um, yeah, you, I think universally humans fall asleep to themselves because of these like psychological and attachment needs that are just 
basic universal experiences. The fact that like humans are, we're a tribal species, you know? So it's, it's really easy to see that like within religion, but even it's like, you know, in political groups or within races or within our genders or, you know, our sexual identities, like we're looking for a tribe that we can feel like safe within, you know, which there is, um, there's like wisdom in that. There's, there's something beautiful of going like, you know, this is my family or these are my people. And like, we take care of each other and like, we protect each other. And like, you know, we need that kind of tribal wisdom in order to like survive in the world and take care of one another. The shadow side to that obviously is like when we start projecting like all of our tribes, like values and customs and like, you know, our, uh, you know, specific ways of like morality or whatnot, like onto other people, which obviously need, we need like societal, like negotiation is like, you know, how are we going to like live with each other with like conflicting values? Right. There's that that's a little bit separate, but it's like, you know, the, uh, we don't have to get into all this, but like just the whole thing about conversion, you know, it's like, here's this other group over here. They're not doing anything like they're living peacefully you know, why do we feel the need to like go impose ourselves over there? But anyway, so, so as I'm like, you know, over the past few years, as I'm like observing, I really started to see these different like stops along the point of like human growth and development. Um, you know, to go back to the model of the seed, it's like, we kind of all start with this, um, egoic agenda. Um, eventually that, you know, we develop into like an ethnocentric agenda, which is more like the tribal, I'm concerned with my tribe and kind of projecting my tribe's values onto everyone. The next level up from that would be like a global centric awareness where it's like, oh, we're all kind of doing the same thing here. You know, like we all have basic self-interests. We're all trying to love our people, you know? And I think that that's probably a place where a lot of your listeners are are at where it's like, hey, this these people are having this kind of experience, especially when they interact with us. And you know, you kind of start validating like that internal experience that everyone's having and you see the commonalities. I think that where it can be a pitfall there is when we fail to recognize that this is a process of human development. And it's like when we get to this space, trying to remember back before we were here. And it's like, you know, and I can say this just from my personal experience. It's like, you know, at first I was like, well, I'm just, I'm just going to go like enlighten everybody (laughs) and like, you know, tell them the way that I see things now. And it doesn't have to be this way. And, um, you know, sort of like the immediate fear that I felt projected onto me, you know, like people I had known for years, all of a sudden it was like, I'm not here anymore. There's this like wall of fear between us. Yeah. And yeah. and I think it's it's easy to kind of like scapegoat and be like, "Well, you're just so fearful and, you know, blah 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 blah." And in my personal experience, I'm like, "Yeah, and so was I." You know, like and I right. couldn't I could not see that until literally like I had this experience where I sort of had to come face to face with like ultimately my fear of death, um, which personally I'm like, I think is kind of unconsciously at the root of most of what we're dealing with. And, you know, especially like specifically in the evangelical world, like prior to my experience, which I didn't seek out, it just happened to me. So I, I feel fortunate that it happened. But prior to that, like I can look back and go like, I was so afraid of burning in hell forever when I died that any notion that like um, would have put me out of like the good graces with God, psychologically, I could not integrate that into my psyche. And it, it had nothing to do, I mean, at the time it was like, I had gay friends, like, you know, there's my aunt is a lesbian. It's like people that I loved very much, like who were, you know, part of the LGBTQ community. But yeah, like just the psychological conditioning that started so early. Yeah. Um, and the fear is just like, 
I can't go there. And, and as soon as like I had this experience and those scales kind of fell out from my eyes, it was like a relief. Like, I don't even think it was a choice to like become affirming. It was just obvious to me. Like, yes. Oh, it, it felt like, you know, as a child, when you believe in Santa Claus and it's like, nothing anyone can say is going to make me stop believing in Santa Claus. Right. And then one day you figure out, oh, it was my parents, like putting presents under the tree. It's, it's right. like, it's not a choice to stop believing in Santa Claus. It's just like, oh, well, obviously that's how it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. To, as a long-winded way of answering your question, I think that there are valuable things at each stage of development where, you know, beyond like the global centric um, is sort of like an integral view where you're trying to like incorporate the good and wise things from each stage without turning it into like ammunition that we then use to like blast people who aren't there yet. And so that was really like with the book, what I'm attempting to do is to just kind of explain this, open up the stories in a new way where it can maybe be kind of like that, like moving away from sort of like magical thinking into like a, oh, this makes more sense. This is, it, it, it seems like there's a little more to this story that I'm seeing now where I don't have to spend so much time and energy, like in this dichotomy of like, is it literal or is it not, you know? And if it's not, then I can't believe this and there's no value here. Right. Yeah. That's really helpful. You know, I really appreciate that towards the beginning uh, when you were answering, you mentioned that, you know, these issues aren't exclusive to the evangelical culture that we grew up, Mm -hmm. you know, we're exposed to. I mean, this is a lot, you can find these problems in a lot of other spaces. And there is a theory, I mean, uh, George Yancey in his book, um, One Faith No Longer, talks about how people who grow up in certain religious traditions and end up leaving them are usually the harshest critics of those traditions. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, because we experience something like I, my, my days are not spent critiquing fundamental Islam, for example. Right. right? But there are people that I know who that is like, they are, they are Muslim and they critique fundamental Islam often because that's like what they're passionate about. Right. So I, I think that's important for people to recognize is that, I think oftentimes what I've seen in in some of the spaces I exist in is this almost like altruistic sense of community. Like, oh, well, it wasn't, I couldn't, the community was so toxic in that space that we'll just create our own space and have no problems. And what that really is, it's a short circuiting of learning healthy conflict resolution you know, yeah. training, right? Because at some point people are going to have a conflict. Like Heather, if you and I hung out for a week, in the Airbnb, it's a matter of time before I don't do the dishes or, or something, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm annoyed. And so how do you work forward? So I I appreciate you sharing, you're sharing that. And I also just want to kind of highlight, um, you know, what you said about hell. This is such a big part. I think for so many of us, it's like, I, I, listen, I was young, 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 young when, when I understood that if I don't essentially pray this prayer and become a Christian, which of course is really code for become an evangelical Christian, you know, you will just spend eternity burning alive like forever. And if you don't tell your friends about that, they are also going to burn alive. I mean, Ed Young, this mega church pastor the other day went semi-viral for using a goldfish as a illustration prompt. Uh, he, he, he took the goldfish out of water and was like, look, this goldfish is dying. And the goldfish is like gasping for air. And then he puts it back in and goes, look, now the goldfish is, is saved pretty much and goes, okay, so many of you in, in the audience are more concerned about the goldfish then, then the fate of your neighbor essentially is what he says. Yeah. And it's like, that's the idea, right? It's like all of his illustrations. So, I tend to agree with you. I think a lot of what we experience in those spaces comes out of this fear of, well, when we die, we will just face God. And if we are on the wrong side of God, uh, we are just going to burn forever. And once you kind of realize that like, it's just not that certain and that this has been a widely human you know, conversation, it has been seen through dozens, dozens of different lenses throughout history it kind of is that Santa Claus thing, right? Where you're like, oh, yeah. well, if we can trace this, how we got to this idea of hell through history, 
then it's it kind of makes sense that like maybe it's not objectively true as like I, I was taught it was right. So I, yeah. I I really appreciate you sharing that. So let's get back kind of to the book for a minute. Um, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned that 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 there are stories. I'm assuming biblical stories that you take and kind of shed some uh, maybe a different perspective on. What are some of the stories that you talk about in the book? Maybe like one or two. And what's kind of the angle that 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 you want to show the audience as they're reading? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, yeah, so the, the experience of hell that w- we've been talking about that um, that we both kind of share, I guess. Um, in in my experience, like I I was like, oh, I, I I think I'm in the belly of the whale. Like I think that this is what this story is referring to was the belly. And so I soon after that, you know, once I <laughs> like kind of got my head on straight and. Uh, was charting a path forward and kind of had like the emotional space to like start exploring some of this theologically. I go back and read the story and it's like, you know, in the, in the sacred KJV version, it actually, Jonah says out of the belly of hell, I cried. Mm. And I was like, what the hell? You know, like (laughs) it it says it right here. Like this is where he was. Um, And so that, that kind of like led into this exploration of like, biblical mythology and mm. um in you know in the study of like comparative religions like this um symbol of water is universally understood in mythology as um a symbol for the unconscious and so it it was like the the whale or the jaws of the beast kind of represent this energy of the unconscious, like swallowing you, like the vitality of your life, swallowing you into this belly. Okay. And what happens in a belly? That's where things get digested. They get broken down. You're taking this old energy, chewing it up and recycling it into literally like your body. Okay. Like if I eat an apple, my belly is digesting it. And then the apple essentially like becomes me. Right. So it's it's this recycling of energy where something new is created and then like where does rebirth happen from it happens out of a belly right. so we see jonah getting spit back onto the shore which would be like the ordinary world so we i i reference um his name's joseph campbell um mm. in the book but he kind of brought forth in the 80s really like this popularizing of like mythology and what he called like the hero's journey and how there, there was like, um, kind of universal, uh, similarities between all these different mythologies, like throughout religions. And, and in that study, it's in this, in that field of study, it's less like, oh, all these different religions just made up these different stories. It's not that it's that these similar symbols and these similar stories and these similar patterns have bubbled up like all over the world through these different religions and traditions where it's like the truth that like these myths are trying to convey to us are coming. They originate in the human psyches and they come up out and they find our way into, you know, our stories and our traditions and our religions. Mm. So I began to see like the wisdom and the pattern that was, um, being personified in this Jonah and the whale story. And so it was like kind of at once this relief to be able to like, let go of like, okay, I don't have to believe that this guy lived for three days in the (laughs) belly of this whale, you know, like the cognitive dissonance kind of went away, but I felt so much more intrigued by my personal transformation that had paralleled this story mythologically. Right. And yeah. And so, um, that's kind of how I take them apart and just kind of show this, this pattern and how it's all connected. You know, like even when we get to Jesus, we see this, you know, he's like, you're going to see the sign of Jonah, you know, and I've all in the church, like I always kind of heard that is taken to mean like, well, Jesus believed Jonah got swallowed by a whale. So it must be true. And once I saw like the mythological pattern, and then Jesus talk about the sign of Jonah. It's like, oh no, this it's the same psychological process that's being represented here of this like dying. You know, it says he goes into the heart of the earth for three days and and comes back up. And so it's like, 
I think that this is more about a pattern of inner transformation that mm. I was experiencing in real time um, that I'm seeing like reflected. So I, I just felt like this re-engagement, um, yeah, like th- this intrigue with like, what, what, what can I know about myself that these stories are telling me? And the thing about mm. mythology um, is that it, it, it's sort of like a map and it knows where you are on the map. So mm. when I recognized I'm in the belly of the whale right now, it, it gave me faith to stay there instead mm. of continuing on with the panic. Like I got to get out of here. You know, I, I need to get out of this place. It became this thing of like, what's, I, I need to hang out in here for a little bit. It's not quite time for me yeah. to re- reintegrate into my life, you know? Um, yeah. And Lots of sense. yeah. So it's been, I mean, it's been like about four, four and a half years, like since this experience that I've, literally, you know, I thought about this every day, like just ferocious reading and trying to make sure like, I, I need to, I need to really be confident about what I am saying and kind of look at all the angles and pick it apart before I kind of re-enter the world, so to speak. Yeah. And feel like I can say anything like with any kind of assurance or authority or write a book. What do you hope your 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 average reader who this book is written for? What do you hope that at the end of it they take away from the book? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I hope number one that there can be um, a bit of a relaxation, for lack of a better word. Um, like a lot of these issues that we spend so much time and energy like arguing about they have, you know, the ideas of man, like have such huge consequences, um, that have like real time global effects and affect everyone. Mm. But when you get down to like the substance of the idea, sometimes it's just so ridiculous, you know? (laughs) And it's like, if we can, if we can just relax some of this, um, it's honestly like an amazing feeling to just be like, oh, that it doesn't matter anymore. And, right. it, and, at the, and at the same time, going like, I can have all of this knowledge. I can have all this education. I can have all, you know, the, the correct theology or unharmful th- theology or whatever. But like, if I can't be like present with my kids, if I can't like really you know, engage with my four-year-old, if I can't really hear, you know, the, the longings and the heartbreak of, you know, my family members who I don't even necessarily agree with, like, if I can't be here now, then all of that is for nothing. Like it does me no good. And so I I think it's kind of a twofold. I, I would love the reader to to feel this new like mystique and intrigue about what these stories can kind of mean for their own personal self-actualization and come back into contact with like the real vitality and like the dynamism of their life and basically like start on the life's adventure of like bringing forth like your essence and actualizing yourself, you know, like, what do you have the potential here to do? What makes you feel fulfilled? You know, there's that kind of personal individualistic, like, um, self-actualization process, but this also like, um, appreciation for like the miracle of now, you know, and seeing like divinity in the Imago Dei, like you're, we're just like in the womb of God, you know, like there's nowhere to go where we would be separate from God. And it's like kind of starting to see like your life and reality is this like heavenly playground. You know, I kind of think like what I used to think heaven might be like, is like, you know, we're going to get there and then there's going to be no problems and nothing to worry about. And they're not going to be like, 
There's just not gonna Hillsong be song playing twenty four seven and all exactly. the and all the speakers. Yes, yeah. there'll be oceans all all day long. Yeah, but there's not gonna be this future to worry about where yeah. I, you know I'm plagued by like my anxieties and I'm and I'm you know carrying this baggage and resentment from the past. Like all that's going away, you know. Yeah. And for me, you know, we can speculate on the afterlife, but it's like. That I think that that is what we're supposed to be experiencing now. Mm. You know, this collision of like heaven and earth, like the two becoming one flesh now. And, you know, this is, Jesus says, like in the Gospel of Thomas, like the kingdom of heaven is spread out on the earth and men can't see it. So it's like, what if we were actually like existing now in what we perceive heaven would be like later? Why not now? Yeah. You know, yeah, I love that. That's great. That's really, really awesome. I love that. So the book, folks, is returning to Eden. The book is out now. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes. Heather, where can folks find you? Are you on social media? Are you on? Are you on the Twitters, the Instagrams, the TikToks? Are you cool? <laughs> I mean, where can where can people engage with you either? Oh, you know, on social Maybe media or, or the web. Yeah, I'm halfway cool, I guess. Um, <laughs> So you can go to my website. It's returningtoeden.com. And there's, um, yeah, there's links there to buy the book. It's on Amazon. There's links to my socials. But yeah, I'm on Instagram at heatherhamilton1. And then um, on Facebook, you just look up Heather Hamilton author. Then you can find my author page. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for making time, you know, to come on the podcast and talk about your book and just how you're renegotiating uh, a better path forward, you know, from your own evangelical heritage. I wish you the best. And, uh, you know, of course, best best of wishes uh, for a successful book launch. That's always a big deal. So thanks for having me, Tim. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure we'll do it again. Keep in touch. Okay. This restaurant is the hottest ticket in town, an incredible 12-course meal made from fresh, locally sourced ingredients. And now for your ninth and final course. Uh, did they forget the last three? When you don't get what you pay for, you can feel a little forgotten. A recent lab study found most top CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels claim. Upgrade your CBD to 100% with Nextevo Naturals. Go to nextevo.com upgrade20.